This episode of Commentary, Trek Stars, is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. This is J.G. Hertz, the General Martok on Deep Space Nine, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today is Part 4 in our series on Harlan Ellison as a writer for The Outer Limits, in which we will recap his work on The Outer Limits and talk about some of the other stuff that he's done. Ellison, of course, was the writer of... City on the Edge of Forever, which we talked about in our first episode. The City on the Edge of Forever of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we were both pretty fond of that. Yeah. And we read his book on the subject, which also included his original screenplay. Yes. What, what did you think about the book in general? Um, like a lot of things Harlan Ellison does, it's uh, there's, there's more really exciting things in it than can be listed easily, but uh, the, the the original script is is fascinating reading because uh, I understand totally the necessity to rewrite significant amounts of it. But I also see why Harlan Ellison was infuriated by some of the changes. Some of them seem ter- perfectly reasonable. Some of them seem like just production changes. Like there's no way we can make that happen. Too expensive. That those kind of changes, I understand those, and I think a lot of the changes that he has a problem with are actually motivated by those forces and the other ones the ones that i do consider to be legitimately uncool changes uh, i do stand with his opinion on that that's what seems some of them seem really offensive like the, the removal of trooper that seems really obviously terrible and really messed up so i'm very sort of very very split on the whole sitting on the edge of forever controversy issue because I think some of it isn't really the problem that people think it is. And some of the problems that people think about are actually a lot worse than they're giving them credit for. Yeah, I uh, enjoy the book quite a bit. You know, I think that it's it sort of shed some, some interesting light on to the creative process. And uh, especially how, you know, negotiating the, the politics of a television show work. Um uh, in the end, like reading the the screenplay, while I, I do think that it is very very good, as is the finished episode, I think I prefer the finished episode um, because most of the changes that were made seem to make sense for the show on the whole. Um, things like Trooper, I mean, I I guess I see what you're saying and what he's saying, but at the same time, um, you know that is kind of a minor element in the episode and while it's true that that was the point that he was making in terms of the character in the world i think that you know whether or not you do that in in this story or another story or whatever is uh you know kind of weird it's a weird thing i mean to say like i mean there there is like a bit of irony there but at the same time 
I don't think that the creators were saying like, oh, you know, these people are, are you know, marginalized. They're, you know, or I don't think that they're margin marginalizing the people. I think that they're marginalizing the character because of the story, which is trying to be to told in the span of 50 minutes, you know. It's just, I mean, I think that it's... That doesn't change the problem. Well, whatever. Like, I mean, if they don't, if you don't consider the the implication of the removal of something simply because it isn't a significant, like, transformative or integral component, that's essentially the exact same mechanism. I, I think that they did consider the implication. And if they considered the implication and then still decided to do it, that's fine. People can do that. I, I don't really think that that's how it went down. I, I, I think I think they did. But, uh, I mean, I think you'd have to. I think you'd have to consider everything that you're removing because when you remove something, you have to consider why it's there in the first place. The debate rages on. So, moving on to The Outer Limits, he did two episodes in season two of that show, which, you know, we talked briefly about how um, you consider season two to be... Uh, much better than season one, as does Harlan Ellison. It's not. It's not something I consider. It's just a fact that I'm aware of. Okay. Season two is good. Season one is really not good. Since since that, like when I was editing that episode, I I was like, am I wrong here in thinking that some people prefer season one? You know, is that is that a misperception that I have? And and I did some research on the internet, hmm. and. I'm not wrong. There's a lot of people out there, like the die-hard Outer Limits fans, they think that season one is absolutely amazing, and season two is basically just littered with dogs, you know. not we, Dogs? Yeah. Episode, that's a weird metaphor. Whatever. Well, I mean, that's, that's, you know, like, oh, this script was a dog. That, that movie was a dog. Nobody says that. <laughs> Maybe people who are still fans of the first season of Outer Limits say that. Okay, because that's a really archaic term. But, but uh, you know, the, like the, I, I was reading a thing with with this guy who wrote the Outer Limits Companion, and they were talking. You know, he, he was being interviewed, and they were, they were talking to him about it, and he's like, "Yeah, it was really hard, you know, writing about season two because I really don't like those episodes, and I had to." try to be as impartial as I could and I think it was a great feat that um, in, in, the, in the finished product it doesn't come across as me hating season two and he I mean like you know pe people agree that there are good episodes here and there like Ellison stuff but the diehard fans consider season two to be I think kind of like Star Trek fans consider season three of the original series to be yeah um, it's really hard for me to imagine that, but I guess like it makes it kind of sense because everybody does sort of have arbitrary attachments to things. And considering that it's a pretty old show, I imagine that some of these people were fairly young when they first saw it, and it's sort of a, sort of a strange phenomenon. I it's I kind of liken it to my reaction to the War of the Worlds series when at the end of the first season they killed a whole bunch of characters and radically transformed the show. When I was first watching it, I was horrified that they were changing the show and turning it into something else. And then I got around to it, and I kind of was like, oh, that was stupid of me, because this new thing is really amazing. I should have seen that as, as amazing when it, when it happened, but I, I didn't. It took me a long time to sort of figure it out. And I think that's possibly a mechanism here, but the idea that somebody would hold on to their false preconceptions of seasons one and two of The Outer Limits for 
50 years. <laughs> Seems really impressively stubborn. I mean, I, I, I... Like a cyborg donkey. I haven't seen either, but I, uh... So I can't, you know, comment, but I, I don't know. I know, like, there's a lot of people who think that, you know, the stuff that Joseph Stefano was trying to do in season one was really interesting and that a, a lot of his ideas were sort of thrown out during season two. Mm-hmm. So there could be some of that going on as well. Yeah, there's, I, I can easily concoct a scenario where people would say that there were things that were lost from season one, but I cannot concoct a scenario where somebody comes up with a logical argument for season one being on the whole better mm-hmm. than season two, because that's just crazy. Yeah. If for no other reason, for no reason other than the most of the episodes of season one being very, very, very similar. They're structurally very similar. They follow a very specific pattern, and there's really very little deviation from it. That reason alone should be enough to invalidate the season one is better than season two theory. Well, I did watch Soldier, which was the first episode of season two, and it was Harlan Ellison's first episode of the show as well. It was based on his uh, short story, Soldier from Tomorrow, which you can get on audible.com. And uh, it is about a soldier from a future war who is accidentally transported back in time to modern day America. Yeah. And the people who find him, the government, essentially don't know what to do with him. So Max, what were your uh general thoughts on soldier? Well, I think it's a I think it's a really cool concept. Um I think both versions of, of Soldier Soldier and Soldier from Tomorrow, the story and the episode, they're both really, really interesting. They both have significant problems, uh, but there's something in there that is really fascinating, and uh, <laughs> it's, just, it's just the weirdest thing imaginable that, that Harlan Ellison has done like these time travel stories so many times, that considering how grounded in you know reality he seems to be his stories always have really bizarre leaps of logic and this one is very very strange but there are enough fascinating little observations about the nature of of war and society it's there's a lot of stuff in there you could easily mine this thing for much more than they got out of it you could you could easily turn it into a series. You could turn it into like a whole bunch of movies or you know giant novels because just the idea. I mean, it's it's humongous. I mean, it's a, it's it's you know somebody with the, the burden of many decades more of of brutal, awful war, and and being able to you know have him re- interact with the world that we know. Humongously interesting, fascinating concepts that really. Um, I really do have a lot of fun and interesting angles you can approach it from. So, I mean, I'm really a fan of it. That being said, uh, there's some stupid stuff in it when, you know, in the episode when he is taken in uh, by the family. That's kind of silly. And in the short story, uh, there's a lot of, like, like time compression that is really kind of off-putting. Because it's sort of like it's like real time for like the first chunk of the story, and then it like jumps years in a few sentences. That's crazy. 
Yeah, I I enjoyed both, although I did think that the uh, short story was substantially better than the episode. Um, I wasn't really off-put so much by the time jumping, um, but I, I thought that that was kind of a cool thing that you know you you could do a lot easier in the prose format than you could uh, on on TV. I think, like you were saying, the concept is really interesting, and I think since it's such a kind of internal, um, strange psychological concept in a lot of ways that it really did play a lot better on the page because you can have like half the story be an internal monologue, which it essentially is. And that's, that's really interesting to me. And the, the concepts that they were able to get across, you know, you don't have to figure out ways to, to, uh, dramatize them. You can just, uh, basically state them and that's a lot more effective in this particular case especially when you're trying to tell a story in 17 pages um so for those reasons i i I do think that the short story is substantially better than the tv show i also agree with you that the stuff where they bring the the guy home to the family and everything like that really does become very sitcom-y and it doesn't work, and it's not nearly as interesting as what was going on in the short story. I do think it's kind of interesting how he, you know, with a couple years' uh, distance, decided that, you know, in this new format, he was going to take a look at the same basic premise, but sort of look at it from a different angle and maybe approach it in a different way. And it really is kind of uh, an interesting adaptation in that sense, because he's not trying to retell the story. He's trying to tell the story from a different perspective. Yeah, it's also a a perspective more compatible with the medium. Right, exactly. Which is a really amazing thing, because that... That concept of like adaptation and transformation into a new form because it's a different medium yeah. seems so obvious to many people. Helen Ellison gets it. He understands yeah. he had to change it in order to, to adapt it into a different medium. But people have done like word-for-word word adaptations of his work, and they come out terrible. And he's like, that came out terribly because you didn't get it right. And at the same time, he has said, like, a boy and his dog. Yeah, they got that story right. He's he's all over the place with his opinions on this concept. Yeah, it's really hard to to pin him down to like one point of view because he does seem to change his mind on certain issues, and he doesn't like send a memo to the fans about how he changed his mind about something. So you just have to parse out the details and go like, okay, so I guess he doesn't agree with this thing anymore, but he this is his opinion now, and that was thirty years ago. So who knows what he thinks now? Okay, so moving on. Harlan Ellison's second episode of The Outer Limits was the one which won him the Writers Guild of America Award for Best uh, Anthology Episode that year, Demon with a Glass Hand. This tells the tale of the Earth-Kaiba War as being fought in modern-day America uh, between a man and a bunch of aliens. And the aliens are trying to stop this man who has a computer for a hand. Spoilers. He's not a man. 
Yeah, because he basically contains all of humanity on a wire in a coil. his body. On a coil? Is it a coil? I thought they said a wire. Yeah, I don't like the, they they changed the terminology. <clears throat> but it's somehow that makes sense. Okay. Maybe body. it's like how Superman carries all of the Kryptonians in his cells now for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> So, what were your thoughts on Demon with a Glass Hand? Uh, this is—I think it's an amazing episode. I think there's a lot of really impressive stuff in it. Like, like I, I, I don't, in in the in the discussion on that, like I thought, like, like it really was so crazy and so revolutionary and had so many amazing things going on in it. It's kind of impossible to explain why it's so great, other than to say there was never anything like that before. And afterwards, there were a lot more options and a lot more possibilities that just didn't exist before that episode aired. And and I think that the main reason why it's difficult to criticize is because a lot of the things that it did just can't be done again because they were done the first time there. Hmm. And the like there's just so much amazing backstory in there that like is is basically, you know, fleshed out with like a, like a, a handful of lines of dialogue. And it explains so much about this reality without anything unnecessary. It's so parsimonious and clever in how it works that I, I, I'm just blown away by every aspect of it. And it's a it's it's a really intricate intricate story and a really cool concept. And uh, and it absolutely drives me crazy that the narrator says American. It absolutely makes me crazy every single time. I actually when I watched it most recently, I put my fingers in my ears and I went la 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 so I didn't have to hear it because then I would be really upset and irritated for the rest of the episode well I, I enjoyed this episode too although I wouldn't say that I was head over heels for it by any stretch of the imagination um, I think I had trouble placing it in the proper historical context and through our discussion I think I am more easily able to do that now and kind of uh, seeing past what it is to what it was, uh, I I think it is a lot better than I originally had thought. Still don't think it's great. Still probably will never watch it again anytime soon, but um, I, I do think it is interesting to look at uh, from a historical perspective. There's uh, certainly a lot of uh, cool ideas in it, and I also do like the fact that they found a way to get those ideas across in a very um, economical way, like literally, um, given TV budgets. Yeah. I think having those restraints probably actually made it better. And Yeah, economically efficient yeah. and the other metaphorical version of economically efficient. Right. So on the whole, yeah, I would say it's good. I, I would recommend it, watching it at least once just to see what it is, just to see what, what this thing uh, was. But I do think you need to look at it as if you were watching it back in the day. Like many things, you really have to think about what the thing was at the time. And there's a, there's a good reason why, like, my Citizen Kane is considered to be significant. And it's not because anybody who watches it, who knows about film, will say, that's the best movie ever made. It's because when you watch it, it is clear that this is the first time somebody did this, this way, 
this well. And ever since then, those tools that were used there and created for that thing were then available to the world. And this episode definitely has that. It is, it is full of brand new tools that people used very efficiently. Mm-hmm. Very economically in both senses. Yes. So, it's kind of weird, in a sense, that the topic we chose for Harlan Ellison was his Outer Limits work, which consists of two things. Because the reality of the situation is Harlan Ellison has created millions of things. <laughs> I mean, how many short stories has he written? How many television episodes? How many comics? The list goes on and on and on. Yeah. And like I said before, my really only exposure to him outside of Star Trek, Sitting on the Edge of Forever... It is through his uh, his commentary on on the state of science fiction in sci-fi buzz. Harlan Ellison is watching. I keep on coming back to that, but I, I really loved those things. I really loved him as sort of a personality, and that yeah. that that is my my Harlan Ellison go to. If someone were to say like, "What do you recommend?" You know, in, in terms of Harlan Ellison's career just because of my limited knowledge and also because of, you know, my personal connection to it, I would say go on YouTube and watch his sci-fi buzz uh, uh, commentaries because they're really fun and also really interesting and really do get you to think. Even if you don't agree with what he's saying, you really start to examine things in a, in a different way and they're well worth checking out and they're very entertaining. What about you? I'm assuming that you've read a lot of his stuff. You've seen a lot of his stuff. What what do you recommend to someone who is unfamiliar with Harlan Ellison and who wants to maybe check out uh, the best that he has to offer? I have no idea how to answer that question. It's like the, who, somebody who wants to see the best that he has to offer, I have absolutely no idea. There's he's got so many different things. He's all over the place with lots of different stuff. I I I, I couldn't tell you what the best thing is. That's no, I'm not impossible. saying I'm not saying what the best thing is. I'm saying what do you what do you recommend people check out? I recommend, and this has nothing to do with what I think is like the best thing Harlan Ellison has ever done. It has to do with what I think um, Harlan Ellison's role in the culture is has been and really should be uh is, is like he you should read xenogenesis which is not which is a non-fiction article he wrote many years ago that was essentially about how the speculative fiction and and the science fiction and fantasy all these authors and all these creators uh, write sort of write stories and characters, and they have a lot of ethical arguments, and they're very sort of high-minded and philosophical, and that's sort of like part of the whole like stigma of of like genre fiction being a little bit stuffy, um, and because it's it's deserved because like there is sort of like an overarching attempt to discuss important ethical and moral concepts, so you inevitably end up with people who are a little bit too noble to be normal or relatable. But Xenogenesis is about how all these guys who create these things, who write these amazing stories about you know people being good and how to be good and not be bad, 
are in many places, in many contexts, very far removed from the character of the fans. And Xenogenesis is essentially Harlan Ellison saying to the fans, some of you are not good people because you are not understanding the thing that we are doing as creators. You are not piecing it together. You are thinking that our stories are about spaceships and aliens, and that's not what they're about, and you are failing as an audience. And he is absolutely 100% right. That is absolutely true. Many, many people do not recognize the important arguments and statements and, and, and concepts being presented by these people. Even, I mean, Roddenberry especially. People fail to recognize the important statement being made. And Xenogenesis is a rather damning indictment of fans who don't get it. And there are a lot of fans who don't get it. And the ones that he talks about very specifically in Xenogenesis are fans that not only don't get it, they are very, very much the opposite of the noble and good and ethical and moral person. And it's really hard to say that he's at all wrong on this this large-scale issue because he really does point out many, many, many problems of the community of fans of these materials. There is, a, there is a sort of a rather shocking aspect of the children, like the, the, the fans, the people who grew up on this thing, of this community, being rather far removed from the parents, which is where Xenogenesis comes from. It's like this, this new generation of fans are clearly not the, the children of these people and this world. Something else is going on. And it's fascinating. And that, I think, is the one thing that I think everybody needs to read if they want to know anything about what Harlan Ellison actually is. Because a lot of people know him from, like, the Terminator lawsuit. And a lot of people know him from, like, him yelling about Sci-Fi Channel being stupid. And those things are a distraction from the larger issue, which is that Harlan Ellison has been a kind of moral watchdog and, and an ethical whistleblower for the speculative and fantasy and science fiction community. And he's really the only one who isn't afraid to say, that guy's a bad guy. You should not support him. Everybody else plays the political game and they don't get into the fray and they don't lob any mud. And he wasn't afraid to do that. And it actually is a big component of why people don't like him. That's a big component of why he was marginalized. And people really want to cut him out of the script but he's just too, too too smart and too loud to shut him up yeah it sounds like classic harlan ellison it sounds very controversial it sounds a little elitist um but very interesting it's it's not a little elitist it's it is absolutely pointing out a very significant aspect of of being good that you do have to recognize that there are people who aren't and if you don't do that then you're being willfully ignorant okay well sounds like something i'll have to check out any final thoughts on harlan ellison and his career working on the outer limits well there's a lot of cool stuff to talk about but i would like to bring up the the lawsuits and the similarities thing because we sort of talked about how obvious it is that Terminator was influenced by Soldier. And 
we might not agree that Terminator is, could, could be considered a ripoff or that any sort of like intellectual property was stolen, but it's very clearly influenced by it. And I suppose it's sort of a matter of perspective whether or not that is worthy of a lawsuit. But because there are so many things that bear so many similarities to other Harlan Ellison works, I mean, think about it. We've mentioned Blade Runner in the in, like in the Bradbury Building, but like it's not just you know a chase in the Bradbury Building. There's a robot chasing somebody else he's in he's in the body of a man and he thinks he's a man but he's not he's a machine it's like that's literally another incredibly specific parallel that is that is copied in a very particularly strange and shocking and weird way and there's a there's the the one angle is like obviously ridley scott saw that episode of the outer limits and it just like imprinted on his brain and then years later he was like coming up with the stuff and he's like i know we'll use that bradbury building i don't know where i saw that but that'd be a cool place for decker to chase someone i think that that's a solid argument but i also think it's entirely possible that harlan ellison has encountered a lot of people ripping off his stuff because he's actually a prophet and he just saw the future and thought that's a good idea for an outer limits episode and then he wrote it because he had seen Blade Runner in the future. I guess that's a possibility. That would actually resolve so many of these like creativity disputes if just a few guys are actually prophets. That would explain a lot. Okay. Well, perhaps that, that is what, what, what happened. kind of think not, but, you know. Why not? Who, who am Seems I to totally say? reasonable. Okay. <laughs> For me, Harlan Ellison has always been much more of a personality than a creator. Uh, Like I said, Sci-Fi Buzz, my first exposure to him, but also kind of like working in a comic book store and people talking about Harlan Ellison, seeing that Harlan Ellison has these new comic books and things coming out, but never actually like reading them, but reading like the backs of them where he talks about them and stuff like that. It's uh, He's always been a a, a character to me. A firebrand. And uh, I guess that's how he always will be to me, even though uh, I'm slowly starting to discover more and more of his stuff. And I've always sort of respected him, even without really being familiar with him. And I guess that says something about his place and his importance in the world of science fiction. Yeah. So. Yeah, he's a, he was a very significant figure. He's still a significant figure. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of positive things to be said about him. But I do actually feel rather strongly that his his most significant contribution isn't even his writing. It's just the idea that he's never been afraid to call someone out. I and mean, that's like, he's like the first person to ever publicly call out Roddenberry for anything. Yeah, and that's it's it's admirable. Although I think also sometimes. Um, I'm not going to say it gets him into trouble because obviously it gets him into trouble. I don't think he's really too concerned with that, but sometimes I think he may go further or maybe what he does is taken in a way that maybe even he didn't intend. Yeah, and I think that that is I think that's a problem. And it's not his problem. It's other people's problem. I think it's partially his problem. See, that's that's that I think is a problem. Well, that problem that you're blaming him, saying like he's he's going too far with these things, he he's the only one going anywhere with them. Right, he's the only one criticizing but, but anybody. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes he he gets on his high horse about things which probably he shouldn't. 
and not, I don't not, think not that because that is not, acceptable. Not because not because it's you know he's going to offend, but because what he's saying is ultimately kind of dumb. You know what I mean? I yeah, I think that it's more important that he be honest than tactful. I, yeah, and and that's because fine. There are so that's fine. Few honest people. Okay, but but I think maybe sometimes he's uh, trying so hard to be combative that he's not being honest, even with himself. So, before we go, one last thing that I do want to touch on, just because it is significant, especially to this show, and since no one else seems to be talking about it anywhere on the internet, which I find to be very, very strange, is that J.J. Uh, Abrams did an interview with MTV uh, last week where he revealed kind of offhandedly that the new Star Trek movie is now being written by two guys who have never had anything produced before named uh, J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay. And uh, Bob Orsi is apparently working with them. I don't know if he's taking on a supervisory role or whatever, but this is kind of a shock considering that uh, Kurtzman and Orsi had been announced as the writers of this new movie. So I just wanted to make note of that. You know, there there are uh, a, a couple new creators in the world of Star Trek. It's the first time this has happened in, in a long time. And uh, they are young. They're the first people from our generation to uh, tackle the franchise, which I find to be exciting. So I guess we'll see what they have in store for us in a couple of years. Yeah, hopefully they're given a good director to work with. We shall see. We shall see. Joe Cornish? It looks like the ball's in Joe Cornish's They could court. do a lot worse. Uh, it, from, uh, in, in, that same, in that same interview, sounds like, uh, you know, Abrams said, I, he said something along the lines of, uh, I love Joe Cornish, I can't wait to see what he does next, and I hope it's Star Trek. Yeah. That to me sounds like they've offered it to him, and they're just waiting for him to make a decision. So, so there's that. There's that news. News on commentary. Trek stars. Oh. All right. So before we go, we've got a lot of other shows on this network. Here. I've heard about them. Yeah. Have you ever listened to any of them? Um, only the ones I'm on. Okay. <laughs> I know that's not true. <laughs> um. But if you haven't listened to these shows, uh, here's a taste of what you may have missed. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. The Trouble with Tribbles Commentary. Something which I think really gets overlooked in this episode. You know, everyone, you know, talks about how funny it is and how the Tribbles are so cute and all this stuff. But really, it's political satire. Earl Grey. Catherine Pulaski. There will be times when I honestly will just forget that there was another Doctor besides Crusher because it's really she's just one of the seven. I thought there were twelve Doctors. Oh wait, never mind. We're talking. Never mind. Sorry, I was thinking of something else. <laughs> I see what you did there. The Orb. Dominion invasion tactics. And Bashir says, "Look, I know what the orders say, but he attacked Chief O'Brien, and we have rules against that sort of thing here. So I think that they're trying to figure out. Yes, the Federation has rules, but." How much are they willing to bend the rules depending on how we push their buttons? The Ready Room. Find your mission, your three. 
I, I, I literally wrote the words to a piece of the action the day before I recorded it, which was about two days before we sent the album off to be mastered. To the journey! Season one marathon. I mean, I do see what you mean. Like you said, the A plot is absolutely boring, but we get a lot of cool moments in here, and we get a lot of introductions. And so for that, it's a good episode to watch in a marathon just because you're introduced to all these cool things. Warp 5. Horror on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Isn't it interesting on this episode, when Reed is being inhabited, the first thing he does is go and hits on all the women. When, the fir- <laughs> when Troop is being yeah. inhabited, the first thing he does is go and eats everything in sight. Commentary, Trek stars. Demon with a glass hand. I wonder what audiences at the time thought of it. You know, this is a time when Beverly Hillbillies was probably the most popular TV show. I just can't imagine what they must have thought uh, watching this thing. Literary Treks. David Mack, A Ceremony of Losses. And then we color-coded it and we started lining up dates and uh, events and saying, well, this book runs from this date to this date these events in this book happen on these dates so that if you're writing this scene in book two you know that it happens exactly let's say 11 days after this event in book one and that sort of meticulous down to the you know fine detail granular planning became absolutely essential and that's what else is happening on trek.fm So check out these shows and get in on the Daily Trek Talk. We have new shows for you every day, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can stream and download files from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. Before we go, we'd also like to ask you to please support our sponsor who makes it possible for us to bring commentary trek stars and our other shows to you each week our sponsor for this show is audible.com now audible has a ton of books on there and they've got a number of things that uh, harlan ellison has written as well if you haven't read any of harlan ellison's books and you want to get an idea of uh you know what he's known for if you want to check out the classics the book to get would be The Voice from the Edge, Volume 1, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Now, I'm assuming that you've read a lot of these. Let me just uh, read off the ones which are, are in, in this collection. I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Awesome. Laugh Track. Pretty good. Grail. Don't know. I haven't read it. Repent, Harlequin, said the TikTok man. Awesome. TikTok man. TikTok man. Okay. The Very Last Day of a Good Woman. Pretty good. Paladin of the Lost Hour. Awesome. The Time of the Eye. I don't remember that one very well. The Lingering Scent of Wood Smoke. It's good. And A Boy and His Dog. Fantastic. Okay, so there, there's there's the official ratings by commentary Trek stars. Um, also, the movie Boy and His Dog. Amazing. Oh, I can't stand that movie. <laughs> but the best part is, if you... Use the Trek FM offer code on audible.com. You can get this book for free. Yes. It's totally worth the money. It's totally worth the no money. Yeah. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from and new titles coming every week. From classics to current bestsellers, Audible has something for everyone. As a Trek.fm listener, 
you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic books you've yet to read or the, that latest novel from your favorite author as well. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And we thank you and Audible for supporting commentary Trek stars. So there we go. That's the end of Harlan Ellison. Yeah. Next week we move on to someone who we strangely have not tackled yet but feels like we we should have a long time ago iris steven bear the showrunner of star trek deep space nine we're gonna tackle the bear yep we're gonna tackle the bear and we will be (laughs) back next week with larry nemechek to discuss iris steven bear's work in star trek 